I was, um, obviously I've been thinking about Thea's dedication. It, it got me on to thinking about growing up. And um, th there's no kind of definition of what it means to be a grown-up. Um, obviously there are some measures we use as society, mostly based on age and outward achievement. Uh, a few years ago the Skipton Building Society produced an echoey list <laughs> of um, 50 signs that you're a grown-up, uh, which included recycling, owning a lawnmower, being able to bleed a radiator, holding dinner parties and listening to radio too. Which means I don't have a lawn, so I don't have a lawnmower, so I'm not grown up. I do enjoy a bit of radio too in the morning though, but there we go. It's a fascinating thing though, isn't it? Because it's, it's my heart for Thea and actually for everybody that we all grow up to be healthy human beings. And I don't just mean healthy externally, I mean healthy internally. That, you see, it's possible to do grown-up things. It's possible to get a degree, it's possible to get a job, it's possible to be responsible people and own a lawnmower and bleed a radio, but actually be very ungrown up in some of our thinking and some of our emotional lives, in our mental lives. And although there might not be a definition of what it means to be grown up in our society, the Bible provides us with this incredible example of what it means to be grown up on the inside. Because this morning, Miriam and Francis dedicated Thea to God. And there was a time when Jesus' parents did the same thing. It says this, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the Lord of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. It's kind of the nearest you'll get to a dedication in first century Jerusalem, at eight days old, he's circumcised as a Jewish boy and formally named. And then at 40 days, the end of the purification period, they take him to Jerusalem and, and thank God for him, which is exactly what Miriam and Francis have done today. Which is where we get this idea of dedication from. It's a way that parents can take a moment to thank God for what, what's been given to them and then choose to make some commitments as to how they'll bring up their child. What's interesting is that immediately after Jesus' dedication, we read this about him. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So firstly, he became something. He says that he grew, and then he became something. And you realise that even if you stand still, as it were, you're still changing. It's impossible to not change, because you're all becoming something. Every one of us becomes something. We're all becoming either freer or more bound, really. Our thinking becomes more expansive or increasingly narrow. Because if we choose not to learn, it means we become increasingly narrow in our thinking. We become increasingly hemmed in in what we think. So we either, our thinking either gets wider and more expansive, or it just gets more narrow and becomes more entrenched. So either way, we're becoming something and we're changing. And no matter how old we are, we must acknowledge that we are still becoming something, whether we are intentionally heading there or not. Jesus, of course, was very much up for learning and very intentional about it. He says he grew and became strong in spirit. You see, you are, you are more than a body. You have a soul and you have a spirit. And your soul is like, it's, it's the place of your emotions. It's the part of your life that feels life, if you like. And um, those emotions, um, they tend to come and go with various external things. They react and respond to what feels good and nice and and lots of us make decisions on how we feel. The challenge we live in life that way is that your emotions have a tendency of taking you A on a roller coaster ride 
and B, they react to external things over which you have no control. So what happens is when you start making decisions based on your emotions, you effectively kind of are making decisions on things that, of which you have no control. So if your financial situation drastically changes and you're living life out of your emotions and you feel this way, or you fall out with a friend so you feel that way, you are effectively living life and making choices based on everything that goes on around you. Which means you're not actually in control of your life. Your life's been controlled by all these external things that affect your emotions that then you act out of. Jesus, of course, knew that he wasn't up for living a life that was out of control. He was living a life that was in control. So you live from a completely different place. You live from this place called your spirit. And that your spirit's not your emotions. It's something more stronger, more eternal, more powerful. It's actually, I believe, what makes you uniquely human. And it's what allows you to interact with the Father God. It's this place in you that... Um, it's the centre of who you are, really. The incredible, wonderful person God created you to be. And Jesus grew and became strong in spirit. He became strong in who he was. Which means he came to terms with his own identity... And then he embraced that identity. So he came to know his own self-worth. He came to know his own significance. And he came to know his own self-esteem. He came to understand. He came to value himself as the father valued himself. And to be honest, I think that's what it really means to grow up. So my prayer for Thea is, is not that she would uh, kind of do whatever she wants to do or she'd get the job she wants. Or, because that is my prayer, but actually there's a prayer underneath that prayer, if you like, which is this. If I, if I was going to pray for Thea, I'd, I'd pray these three things. I'd pray that she becomes secure in the knowledge that she is loved beyond measure. Then I'd pray that she's worth much more than she could ever imagine. And then I'd pray that she knows she has a place and a role in this world that's hers to fulfil and that in fulfilling it, she will know that her life is deeply significant. Because if she understands that she's secure in the knowledge that she's loved beyond measure, if she understands that she's worth much more than she could ever imagine... And if she knows that she's got a place and role in this world and that she is deeply significant, everything else will fall into place. Absolutely everything else will fall into place. See, to grow strong in spirit like Jesus did means you'll know these things. You'll know how loved you are, how valuable you are, and how significant you are. Which is interesting because it gives us a little bit of a target as to whether we're grown up or not. Because if this is... If this is what it means to grow up, and I believe it is, then we can ask ourselves, well, how grown up are we? Perhaps we could ask ourselves whether we are secure in the knowledge that we're immeasurably loved. Perhaps we could ask ourselves whether we know, not as a thought in our mind, but in the gut of our stomach, that we are worth far more than we could ever imagine. And perhaps we could ask ourselves whether we know how significant we are. These are some of the deepest questions really that we ask but the truth is we all try and find those answers often people around us we look to parents children partners friends and we go well will, will they love me no matter what well, when, we're, when we're perhaps uh, dating or looking for a partner one of the questions we want to ask is will they love me no matter what will they continue to love me forever and the, the problem is that question kind of haunts us because we so desperately want it to be yes but we fear that it'll be no because when we ask ourselves that question we're not quite sure. So we know that we ourselves, we want to be able to go, yes, I'll love you forever no matter what. And maybe sometimes in moments of passion we might say that, but then when the rubber hits the road, we might even doubt whether we can do it. And if we doubt whether we can do it, that must mean we doubt whether this other person can do it. Because we are human. 
And what's fascinating about these things is that it's kind of a valid fear. We're right to have doubts because it's simply not possible for another human being to be able to meet those three things. It's just not possible. And loads of relationships break down because we, we know deep down we need these things even if we can't articulate them, we can't say what they are. We know we need them and then we look for them and then they don't happen and then we go, oh, you, you failed me, you didn't give me what I need. The problem is that person can never give you those things at the deepest measure of your heart. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can give you the security of so deep a desire. There's only one person who loves you with an everlasting love. There's only one person who values you more than life itself. And there's only one person in whom you can find your true significance. You see, it's only in and through a relationship with Jesus that you can fully know these things. Which I suppose is why we dedicate children, because we recognise we can't do it. We, we need some help. I guess Miriam and Francis know that for her to fill all her potential, there won't be enough for her. They'll do the best as all parents do, and they'll make mistakes as all parents do. But this is the interesting thing, because Jesus on his own can't meet all those things either. He can't. Because you were built for community, you were built for family, you were built for togetherness, you were built for connection. So even Jesus on his own can't do all that, because you need Jesus and you need a community of people. And when you get a community of people and you get Jesus, then those things can be met. But some of us seem to think that, well, if I just have Jesus... He's going to give me all those things. Well, you may well get that measure, but sometimes you'll just need a hug. You'll need somebody to put their arms around you and let their shoulder get wet with your tears. Sometimes you'll need somebody to listen who can just reflect back what you're hearing so you feel like you're not going crazy. Sometimes you'll need somebody to just give you a little gift to remind you that you were loved and precious. Sometimes you'll need somebody to just spend time with you just for the sake of spending time with you. But in these two things, in order to thrive, in order to prosper, in order to grow up internally, you will need Jesus and you'll need a community of people. And when those two things come together, then you can be strong in spirit. You see, but uh, in order to thrive and prosper, Jesus was, he had three things. He was strong in spirit, and then it talks about wisdom. You see, in order to navigate this journey we call life, you're going to need some wisdom. You're not just going to need to be strong in spirit. You're going to need some wisdom to know what to do. And wisdom is this. Wisdom is doing the right thing at the right time with the right people in the right place. And, and wisdom is more than knowing about Jesus. It's not just knowing about Jesus. It's not, oh, well, I've read the books and now I know about Jesus. No, wisdom is knowing what Jesus would do in that situation. Because our world doesn't look like the world Jesus walked in. It's a completely different world with completely different challenges. He says Jesus grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. At the age of 12, he was full of wisdom. Now, one of the interesting things about wisdom is that it's always available to us, but most of us ask too late. It's always available... But most of us ask too late. In Proverbs 8, verse 1 to 3, which is an incredible proverb, and, and wisdom is like personified as a lady in this proverb. 
He says, does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. Wisdom cries out. In other words, and look where wisdom cries out, at the gates. Well, when this was written, the gates was the place where the elders would meet and you would seek counsel from the wise elders of your say. So it's at the place counsel is saw. It's at the entry of the say, the entrance of the doors. In other words, before you go in, wisdom's available. Before you go in. Before you get into something new. Before you make that decision about this new thing. Before you do this, wisdom is available. Most people get so excited about the new thing whether it be a job, a relationship, a ministry, a large purchase, a major life decision, they tend to make the decision, act on it, and then go, I've done this, what do you think? Well, it's a bit late, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Very late. Too late. It's a bit late, isn't it? I've decided I'm going to move house and I've bought it, what do you think? Well, what do you want me to say? I've quit my job because I thought that were a good thing to do, what do you think? Well, it's too late, you've quit, haven't you? I spent all my money on this. You want, and I don't, I don't understand it because most people, let's say they're buying a car off Steve, they wouldn't buy a car and then take it to Steve and go, what do you think? Most people would go, I understand I don't know about cars. I'm going to go to Steve and ask him whether this is a good idea. But when it comes to making major life decisions, we seem to think we're all experts. What's that all about? You're like, hang on a minute. A car versus who I'm going to marry. A car versus where I'm going to live. A car versus the job. Like, I don't understand it. But wisdom is available before. In fact, wisdom is available at every stage of the process. In Proverbs 8, verse 27 to 29, there's this incredible description of wisdom. And it says the preparation stage, the architectural stage, the establishment stage, as things are strengthened, as assignments and limits on those assignments are needed, when clear boundaries and direction is needed, wisdom is there. In other words, wisdom is always there. At every point, at every moment, at every opportunity, wisdom is there. The difficulty and challenge, though, is this. It costs to find wisdom. And I don't think we fully understood the cost nor sought out the counsel of God at this level. One, because we like to think we're an expert and we don't need anybody else's help. But two, because we often see our need very late. And it's never too late. It's never too late for God to redeem anything. It just becomes more costly for it to be redeemed. So God can redeem everything and anything. But when you're so far down a path, it often costs you more to redeem it. Which is why getting wisdom before is a great idea. So, verse 32 to 35 says this. Now therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. Forever finds me, finds life, and obtains favour from the Lord. Listening, watching daily, waiting. You see, if you take time to listen, to watch daily, to wait, then you, do, you would be like Jesus, filled with wisdom, and you'd, you'd stop causing yourself a whole lot of pain. So maybe we have to ask ourselves, well, in terms of being grown up then, how good am I at listening, watching, and waiting? So often we get something new, don't we, and we're like, I've got to do it now. Most things are not going to get lost for the sake of a 24-hour wait. 
very, very few things are going to fall apart because you just took 24 hours to just ask and pray and ponder. Uh, thank you. I got a lot from you. Good. Finally, not only did Jesus become strong in spirit and filled with wisdom, but it says the grace of God was upon him. The grace of God's an incredible thing. It says this in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the word is a, is a word John uses for Jesus. So Jesus became flesh, like me and you, and made his dwelling among us. He lived on the earth. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that seems like a bit of a paradox. A paradox is two things that shouldn't really exist together but do. He was full of grace and full of truth. And he managed to walk the tightrope between two potentially opposing ideals on a continual and constant basis. Now if you survey, I was going to say the church landscape, but maybe even a wider landscape, you'll find that people often fall into grace or they fall into truth. So at one side you've got grace. And grace is, at its simplest form, is not getting what you deserve. That's its lowest, kind of easiest way of explaining it. Not getting what you deserve. It's extreme is what we call liberalism, which is a sort of grace that says you can do what you want, anything, anything goes, because God loves you anywhere, and he'll always love you and he'll always have you back. Which is, of course, true. He does always love you and he will always have you all back. There's nothing particularly false about those statements. But if you live however you want, you will end up causing pain at yourself and those around you. That's the truth. And yes, God will love you, and yes, God will have you back, but you'll make your own time on the earth more painful than it needs to be. You see, living God's way is not necessarily about pleasing him, although it does please him. It's about giving you the best life possible. That's what we've missed about God's way. I'll, I'll, I'll expand that in a minute. On the other side, it's truth. It's extreme. Um, it's legalism with its rules and regulations. You can't do this, you can't do that. It rules by fear and condemnation. It's, it's a bit like, not quite to that extent, but you know, it's the place I grew up like, so you can play football in the youth hall on Monday night at Boys Brigade, but on a Sunday you can't, because there's some rules in this place, and we have to do this, and we have to do that. But legalism goes, you can do whatever you want, and it doesn't matter if you hurt anybody. Well, well, there's these two extremes, and somehow, Jesus walked this tightrope right in the middle. And truth is really interesting. It was an issue in Jesus' day. Pilate questioned Jesus. He went, what is truth? You see, there's the truth, which for me is what God says. So this is the truth. As far as I'm concerned, this is the truth. Absolute truth. But then, I've got my truth, which is what I really think about this. So, your truth, the truth, is God loves you a bit, and he thinks you're wonderful. But then there's what you think about that statement, which is your truth. And you may agree completely with that truth, that God loves you a bit and he thinks you're wonderful. Or you may go, mm, well, my truth is he loves me most days when I'm a good boy or girl. That's your truth. And one of the challenges of the Christian faith is to make your truth his truth. But truth, we could think of it this way. We could think of truth in this sense. Truth, when I think of God's word, is the best way to live. And when I talk about the best way, I don't just mean externally, I mean living the best way internally. In other words, this journey to be like Jesus is not trying to imitate his actions, but about learning to line up our hearts and character 
with his heart and character. Because as you do that, you'll do what he did. And as we become more like him, then our external lives start to reflect who he is more and more, and our actions and reactions change. But we've got to understand this. This best way to live is not for God's sake, it's for yours. That's why the things he says and the things Jesus says, I love it because it helps me. I'm not trying to live. Um, so when Jesus says things like, you know, don't, don't, it used to say don't murder, but I say to you, don't have kind of hate in your heart. Well, actually then, I'm trying to live that way. I don't want hate in my heart. Why? Because hate eats me up. Hate causes me to live in a certain way that eats me up and then hurts all the people around me. So in other words, it's for me. We seem to have this strange idea that if we live the best way, that somehow invokes God's pleasure and favour and therefore he then has his favourites and he looks down on those with greater pleasure than those who don't manage it. I don't think God sees it like that at all. I don't think he sees it like that at all. Because he sees me, he looks at me, and what does he see? He sees Jesus. That's what the resurrection and death of Jesus is all about. So he doesn't see my good stuff, but neither does he see my bad stuff. And the irony, of course, is that you'll never live the best way. You'll never manage this side of eternity to live like Jesus lived. Every moment of every day. You might manage it for a few moments. And one of the... We often, don't we, when we want to feel good about ourselves, we focus on the bits of our lives that we do manage to live the best way. And then we give ourselves a little pat on the back. Well, in this area, I'm, I'm doing good. We won't talk about this area, but this area, I'm doing really well. So, yeah. And of course, if you are managing to live the best way, then you've done well. But please know that does not mean you suddenly walk in an increased kind of God somehow has given you a stare of the week or something because you've done that. And please don't think he loves you more than somebody who hasn't managed it because he doesn't. What it will mean is you walk in a greater measure of life that you and everybody else benefits from, which is a beautiful thing. And know that that person that you were looking at, that you were thinking, they're not doing as well as me in this area. There is probably one area where they are kicking your butt. And that's what helped me greatly in seeing other people as God sees them. I know that I don't manage to live the best way. I don't go through one day and manage to live the best way the whole day. And neither does anybody else. And you see, our journey through life is this journey towards the best way to live in every sphere of our lives. In some areas we're doing well, in some areas we're not. We may feel we've got it covered. We may feel that we are failing miserably. Either way, Jesus meets us in grace and truth. And this middle way, this balance of grace and truth, is brilliantly shown in interaction with Jesus in John chapter 8. Jesus is stood somewhere and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, bring a woman who's been caught in adultery. Quite how they managed to capture without making themselves unclean, which is the law is interesting, and quite what happened to the other person is also interesting. Um, but there we go. That's what happens when, well, we won't go there. But, and the law says that she must be stoned. And they go, so Jesus, what are we going to do about this one then? Because they're interested in finding out what Jesus is going to do. Is he going to go with grace and let her off, which means he's going to disobey the law that his own dad said? Or is he going to go with truth and go, no, we're going to, we're going to kill him? 
And Jesus does some incredible things. First of all, he bends down and writes in the sand. Which shows everybody else that he knows the truth. Because this Bible had been developed a little bit more by this time, by the first century, and there were lots of other laws as well. And one of the laws was it's a Sabbath, the day that this happens. And one of the laws was you can't write on the Sabbath, except writing was classed as a permanent mark. So if you write in the sand, it's not a permanent mark. So Jesus very cleverly goes, oh, I know all about the law. I'm going to write, and I'm going to show you. I don't just know the written law, I know the oral law, I know it all. I know everything there is to know about the law, and I'm going to show you that I know that. And then he just asks this one Wonderful question. If anybody else has not got it wrong, you can chuck the first stone. And the Bible tells us that from the eldest to the youngest, they walked away. And then Jesus stands up and says, well, where's everybody? Is, is nobody ready to chuck a stone at you? And she says, no, they've all gone. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. But start living a healthy life. Because that life you've been living is not healthy for you. And he meets her. And grace. And truth. He knows the law. He knows all about it. But he ain't going to throw stones. But he is going to encourage you to live the best way. That's what it means to walk in grace. To meet people. To free people. Point people in the direction of the best way. Continuing to love them whether they choose to walk in that best way or not. So if you ask me what it means to grow up and what my prayer for Thea today is, it's this. And not just for Thea actually, but for everybody. Just whether you're eight months old or 80 years old, there's always some growing up to do. So this is my prayer for you all. In fact, I'm going to I'm going to pray it over you right now. Shall we pray it together? Father, we thank you for your word and the insight in your word. And Lord, we see Jesus at 12 years old, strong in spirit, full of wisdom and full of grace and walking the tightrope of grace and truth so wonderfully well. And Father, we want to be like him. So we are asking, Lord, that we would be increasingly strong in spirit, Father, far more than we could ever think or imagine. And, Father, we ask that we would grow in wisdom. And we ask, Father, that we would seek wisdom at the right time, Father. We would seek wisdom before. And we thank you that we might grow in grace and walk the tightrope of grace and truth. In the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.